Welcome to CX Champions, an unscripted masterclass on how you can stand out, think differently, and reimagine what a customer experience could look like in a digital first world. I'm your host, Larry Fleischman. Today, we're talking with Glenn Weinstein. Glenn is the Chief Customer Officer at Twilio. Twilio is one of the most influential customer engagement platforms in the world, with millions of people interacting with their software every single day. They're what Silicon Valley investors refer to as a unicorn. Twilio was founded in 2008, and with only a few short years, they built a market cap that exceeds $8.5 billion. But before we get started, let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by HGS. HGS is a digital customer experience leader dedicated to delivering winning customer interactions at scale that are prompt, personal, and positive. We continuously transform, optimize, and grow enterprises to exceed ever-rising customer expectations. HGS provides our clients with the right talent and technologies needed to champion every moment. Learn more at hgs.cx. Warren Buffett once said, the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. Now, ideally, we start to create these great habits at a young age. Our guest today took that concept to a whole new level. He's the quintessential overachiever. He taught himself to program in grade school in the 80s, graduated from the Naval Academy, and eventually sold a company for half a billion dollars. But he didn't stop there. He now leads global customer experience for one of the hottest SaaS brands on the planet. Twilio. So let's get into it. Hello, Glenn Weinstein, and welcome to CX Champions. Good morning, Larry, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's really great to meet you. Did you go for a run this morning? I did. As a matter of fact, I'm training for the Tokyo Marathon. This will be my eighth marathon and my fifth world major. The uh, marathons are not in my, uh, you know, I have ADD. I just can't do it. I just, I start, if I smell bacon, or anything on the way, I'll take a, you know, I'm going <laughs> off, I'm going to go get a BLT. Look, you've got a really great background, right? CXO of a multi-billion dollar company, Naval Academy, pretty well-known consultant in the space. But I think at the end of the day, you're a tech geek. And I'll, I just want to go back in time if we could. I read somewhere that when you were a kid, you had a Commodore 64 and you, you learned how to program. You actually started a bulletin and created a written inventory system for a family friend. I mean, how how did you learn how to do that? Well, you're you're hitting on one of my core identities, Larry, which is I see myself first and foremost as a geek, a software developer, a programmer. And it started actually with a Commodore Pets. And then I upgraded to a Commodore 64 in junior high school, high school, built a bulletin board service, just figured out basic and figured out programming. And at that time, I never realized that you could make a career out of it. I thought it was a hobby. It came to learn many years later that that could be the foundation of a career. And here I am with a tech career. I really honestly feel like a professional athlete where like they play games all day and they get paid for it. You know, I, I do what I love all day and companies pay for it. It's pretty cool. It's a gift. I mean, it really is, right? So now we're dealing with the 1980s. Uh, so there's no Google, there's no YouTube. And I'm sure there's a lot of schools didn't really offer this, particularly in grade school. How did you learn how to program? Yeah, I, I learned out of magazines. I, it's, it's hard to remember how this all worked before the internet, but I get a, a magazine every month with basic programs in it. You type them into your computer from the mag- pages of the magazine and see if you, get, if you could get them to work. That's how a lot of programmers learned back in those days. 
And it's really funny how even today at Twilio, when I'm talking to my counterparts in R&D and engineering, that's a common story. A lot of us of a certain age, you know, started with a Commodore 64 or a TRS-80 or an Apple II, and we just figured it out. Nowadays, in a way, it's kind of harder and easier. It, it obviously, there's a ton of material out there, but it's so much more complex, the stack. Um, you know, in those days, luckily, it was kind of simple to just, just to get a programmer running. So some serious street cred uh, when you're dealing with developers, uh, especially coming right out of school these days. Now, after that, you went to uh, Naval Academy. I mean, what led you to the Naval? I mean, going from a p- computer design, I mean, you know, thinking about that. Yeah. What, what, where did the Naval, is this something in the family? Like, how, how did you know about the Naval Academy? Not in the family, but my, br- my older brother went to the Naval Academy. He wanted to be an astronaut, and he found out that more astronauts graduated from the Naval Academy than any other college. So he went to the Naval Academy, and I was this, I, I say I'm a, I was a geek. I was also a jock in high school. I was on the football team, and I really was into sports. And I just went to visit my brother at the Naval Academy. I said, this is a cool place. Everybody plays sports all the time, and everybody's competitive and athletic, and like, oh, I, I kind of like this. So I followed him to the Naval Academy and, and was very pleasantly surprised to realize you could major in computer science. I had no idea. So I picked computer science as a major and got my bachelor's degree in comp sci mm. from the Naval Academy. And then you know, was on active duty as a Naval flight officer for eight years after that. What kind of projects were they working on? I mean, when you're at the, at the school, or they, I'm sure yeah. it was all hands-on. So how yeah. did you build that? Yeah computer science projects at the Naval Academy. You know, this was anybody that got a comp sci degree in the 80s. You look back on the curriculum and it it was very basic stuff back then. It was a lot of networking, databases, you know, some programming theory. Ada was the language we used at the Naval Academy. It's still a language used in the Defense Department, kind of a predecessor of Java in a lot of ways. And got a very, what I would consider foundational education in computer science, which is another thing I think that serves me and others well is the lack of an intimidation factor. When you learn from ones and zeros, how to end switches work and or mm. switch. And from there, build you know basic kind of CPU logic and then build a machine language and then build an abstract uh, third generation language on top of that. You kind of can picture how all that works down to ones and zeros. Nothing is intimidating after that. Did you have any kind of idea that after this, uh, you would get into customer experience and building solutions? No, no idea. You know, first I thought, hey, I'm at the Naval Academy. This is a pretty cool place. I'm not going to be an astronaut. That became apparent when I had to get contact lenses. But, you know, I realized I could be a Naval flight officer. So I just thought Navy's fun. I, I got into the Naval Academy. It was, it was definitely the place that suited me well. And so I just completely, uh, you know, was a Navy guy for eight years. You know, my wife and I, we traveled all around the world, got stationed in different places. And, you know, you just live the Navy lifestyle. And it was only after I decided not to make a career in the military that I started to pick my head up and say, what jobs do people get when they leave the Navy? And, you know, I got a master's degree in computer science while I was on active duty from RPI. And through that and through military recruiters or, uh, you know, recruiting companies that target exiting military officers, that's when I learned, hey, there's actually some demands for technical people. In the late 1990s, programming was still considered nascent. There was so much potential in the space, and private companies were doing whatever they could to get an edge on the competition. They were looking for experienced computer programmers who would bring a different perspective to their business so they could be better prepared for the future. But it wasn't easy finding people who had the right mix of training, education, and real-life application. So where did they find these talented individuals? The military. 
Yeah, it was a really a dream first job because Lockheed Martin at the time, this is the late 90s, were looking to diversify from just military contracting into civilian technology. Lockheed Martin acquired a company that was one of the cutting edge object oriented analysis firms and they were doing commercial consulting. So I was put to work doing an OO project at Geico Insurance as a part of a Lockheed Martin consulting team. So I did strictly commercial consulting from Lockheed Martin. You know, things have changed. Um, the Lockheed Martin really re-embraced their identity as defense contractor in the 2000s. So I was there at a very particular point in time when Lockheed Martin sort of saw themselves as the next Accenture or Deloitte. And, you know, that, that didn't really come true. But I got a, a great experience in how software teams work in corporations to build complex systems. That was a, a tremendous introduction. So... You know, it's only in retrospect that I kind of look back and realize, wow, I was part of one of the largest, best known, best run defense contractors in the world. But, you know, your world as a frontline consultant is your project. And my project was at Geico, and it was building a next generation claims processing system to augment what they'd built 35 years prior on the mainframe. So this is the first non-mainframe based claim system that uh, Geico ever had. Uh, I was part of building that. Right. So now you're 28, you're speaking into these large audiences, you're in a consultant mode. Did you ever have imposter syndrome? Um, I, I think everybody does to some extent. I mean, listen, one thing you learn at the Naval Academy is there's always somebody smarter than you, faster than you, bigger than you, better than you. You know, the Naval Academy is a collection of ex-valedictorians and class presidents and team captains. And, you know, when there's a thousand people in your class that all bring those credentials, you know, you really learn some humility. And I've carried that uh, feeling. Maybe it's a, there's an element of imposter syndrome in there. Like I wasn't the best in my class. There's a lot of people smarter than me. But on the other hand, you know, the military background, I think, does give you a boost of confidence. So very similar to what I said about when you learn programming from the bottom up from one to zero, you know, you have confidence. I think a lot of military veterans would have this feeling like, Hey, when you've put it all on the line in a NATO conflict overseas, you know, there are lives at stake and everything else is, is a game. It's all for fun. You just lose the intimidation. factor. You know, I'm, I'm a chief customer officer now at Twilio. If we have a tough quarter, you know, I will be okay. I mean, the stakes are not that high. It, we'll all be fine. We're all people. It will, it'll be okay. One thing I've talked about with my teams and one thing I believe is that having a strong technical background is a real advantage in leadership in technology companies. And that may sound self-evident, but it's not universally true. You do see a lot of people in software companies, especially at executive levels, that have either lost touch with the technology or maybe, you know, never really had it in the first place. Being able to start out, and I think that project at Geico was very critical to my career development. You know, starting out hands-on keyboard, you know, writing C++ code, thinking about the complexities of integrating client server systems with mainframes. Not at a managerial level, like how am I going to find someone to do that? But doing it yourself sets you up in your career to really be able to empathize with teams that have to build things. And you just get a real appreciation for the complexities. It's hard to make computers work, period. Much less the big complex systems that our companies are making today. And I think it makes you a better leader when you've kind of like, okay, I've been there, I've done that. And I respect the job that you have to do as an engineer, as a product manager, as a designer, as a tester in my software. I think a lot of our listeners um, have always, you know, a lot of them are young in their early stages of their career, whether or not they want to become a CXO, whether they want to be in the C-suite at all. 
but they're all building this path. And I think looking at it from the perspective of that it's not just handed to you and the generations that are coming up have this almost a uh, assumption that they believe everything is handed to them. I don't necessarily believe it. That's actually true. But if you're talking directly to that audience that's listening and looking at, you know, some feedback, you built a career and a lot of it is around that you had this doer mentality. Let me figure it out first. I will go in. I will figure out how to build it. I'll roll up my sleeves. And I'm assuming, you, yes, there's the indirect respect you get out of that, that people will rally around someone you as a leader. But what's the value in being a doer as opposed to the alternative? It's actually something I learned in the Navy, which is that, you know, there's no admiral in the Navy that didn't start out flying a plane, driving a ship, mm. you know, running, a, engineering a nuclear power plant. You know, everybody in the Navy starts out as doers. Um, there's no fast path to admiral or general in the Army. And um, I think the value of that is not just the respect you get from peers and, and teams, as you mentioned, but also uh, confidence. I mean, you just, you're doing something that you know well, you love it. It maybe it's a, in a way, it's a way to minimize this imposter syndrome problem. I would never want to start my career in a position, you know, kind of too high, basically, right? I knew I didn't know as much as my team. I think the best managers in a software company or a technology company are those that can also be coaches and mentors. It's the way the Navy runs, and it's the way that I think great software companies run. The only way to do that is to start your career grabbing experiences where you get a chance to be the responsible person, to deliver something, to build something. It's a lot of work, it's frustrating, and uh, but you've got to kind of keep your eye on the, the goal is to build experiences and build confidence. The career ladder comes, will come just by, you know, excelling at your job, being a good teammate, but you don't have to, and you don't want to come in on day one and be like, how do I make my way to level three, four, five, six? It's a bad move. Now, before I really want to get into Twilio, and I'm sure a lot of the audience would love to hear uh, your perspective because you've been through Twilio at an incredible stage, got it through some incredible times. You co-founded Perio and since been acquired by Wipro. What was the impetus of starting Perio? How did it come about? Who did you start it with? Well, so I found myself at Web Methods with three colleagues that we all got along really well. And we all are in different parts of the company too, which is kind of interesting in retrospect. A bunch of us went to Borderland after that. And we just started to look at the system integrator consulting partners that were working with our company. Realized, hey, consulting is really critical to the success of our companies. And yet, there's not a lot of great consultancies out there. They're all pretty mediocre. They're not very customer-focused. None of them seem to understand our customers' businesses as well as we do. We just saw a lot of deficiencies in that market. And, uh, you know, the four of us had been kicking around crazy startup ideas. Hey, wouldn't it be cool someday to start a, uh, you know, whether a fly fishing company, a, a athletic uh, goods A fly company. fishing company or a, or a no, global consultancy. Yeah, I, I get it. I, get it. I would yeah, be in business. But, but that was kind of the aha moment was like, there's this big market. It's a really important market. And there's not a lot of good companies in it. And the spark for creating a Perio in 2006 was when we found out about a company called Salesforce.com. Our head of sales at Borland brought Salesforce in to uh, run the sales team. And that was the first time I'd ever seen up close a multi-tenant cloud architecture. To that point in my career, client server, talking about fat clients and what we call today on-premise software. And when, it, when, when I saw what Salesforce was doing at scale, I, that was, a, as a computer scientist, was a big moment for me. A big revelation was, 
Uh, Salesforce, this is a better way to run enterprise software. So combination of, I think Salesforce is about to take over the world. They were a $300 million company at the time. And realizing it's probably not a lot of good consulting companies for Salesforce because we hired one to implement Salesforce and we didn't think they were very good. That seemed like a startup opportunity. So we all quit our jobs and we created a four-person consulting company for Salesforce.com in 2006. What were some of the projects outside? I mean, were you doing pure Salesforce and that was the, the, yeah. the core? Yeah. Well, I was the first Salesforce consultant for Aperio and we hired uh, some other consultants, do some work and we rolled up our sleeves and we started to win customers and we just did Salesforce project. Before too long, we realized that we partnered with Google and this is just when Google was coming out with Google apps for your domain, which is subsequently G Suite and now Google Workspace. And we said, hey, they're going to need consultants too. So we became a Google partner and we eventually became a Workday partner. That was our third major pillar. And when Workday uh, started to get momentum, basically they were the, the cloud version of PeopleSoft, kind of like Salesforce was the cloud version of a CRM. And so we became a significant partner in the Workday ecosystem as well. So those were the three things we did. We did consulting projects for those three companies. You ended up uh, getting the company sold and you did it at a pretty decent valuation, particularly for a services company. But how did you decide to say it's time for it to be ac- acquired or were they coming to you? Well, a little of both. And it's important to understand the character of Curio, the kind of company that we created. It was a straight consulting company. I guess consulting companies run the risk of basically just being body shops, labor arbitrage. And to create more value than that, you've got to introduce some intellectual property, some IP into your company. And we actually started a period of thinking we'd be a hybrid services and software company. And we actually built some software products in the earlier years of the company. Now, the consulting revenue started to overwhelm the product revenue, and we eventually embraced our identity as a consultancy, but always with this strong theme of, you know, we never do the same project from scratch twice. We're building software, we're building structures, we're building templates so that the company gets smarter with every project that we do. And I think ultimately, you know, you asked the question, like, we got a decent price for Imperial when we sold it. And I think it's, you know, in part because we had built a lot of intellectual property and capital around the labor that we brought to the market. It really is a, the interplay of those two. Just building product would have made, made for a very small company. Just being a consulting company would make for kind of low value. But you put those two together, that's a pretty valuable combination and was seen as valuable by potential acquirers. Aperio was purchased by the Indian IT company Wipro in 2016 for $500 million. At the time, this acquisition cemented Wipro as one of the largest and most influential cloud transformation practices in the world. After the break, we're going to get Glenn's perspective on what it was like transitioning from company founder to corporate executive. Now, the reason we we ended up selling the company really was driven by kind of topping out at our scale. We had achieved over 200 million in revenue. And we're at the point where we're starting to compete for very big projects with very big companies. And at that level, companies, they want a global sales force. They want, you know, global resources. They want you to do more than just Salesforce Workday and Google. And we realized either we're going to have to become Accenture or we're going to have to get acquired by an Accenture, you know, or a Deloitte or a global systems integrator like Wipro. And, you know, that was kind of like a gut check moment. Like, do we think we're creating a global systems integrator to rival the biggest in the world? Or is it smarter to join forces? And then we just eventually realized, you know, this is about as far as we think we can scale it. 
There's a lot of truth to the statement, opposites attract. The best relationships always have your yin and your yang. Well, this rings especially true when building a business and putting together your leadership team. Alongside Aperio's co-founders, who brought their finance and business degrees, Glenn came in as the computer scientist, and he was instantly positioned as head consultant. He was essentially the boots on the ground. Now, playing the role of strategic founder and also hands-on consultant for over a decade can be extremely advantageous when working with customers. However, that dichotomy of perspectives became invaluable and particularly attractive during the time Aperio was ready to be acquired. You know, I feel like I was able to learn the business and finance aspects of it on the fly, basically, to a point where I'm credible. Uh, I'm not no expert, but I'm credible. I don't think you can do that in reverse. There's no MBA that can sort of pretend that they're a programmer. You know, you either got that or you don't. So um, I want to uh, shout out to any technical people in the audience. You don't need to get an MBA. Your technical chops are more than likely going to carry you through your career. No, I think it's great. And, uh, you know, there's all these paths that people take. And it's interesting, we, we speak to a lot of CXOs. And at the end of the day, they've all taken completely different paths. And you've taken this unique path with a lot of exits. Uh, one of the exits I obviously really want to get into is a Twilio and what you're doing there. And for the listeners who don't know what Twilio is, a uh, 60-somewhat billion-dollar SaaS company, built a platform used by hundreds of thousands of businesses, more than 10 million developers worldwide, building all these personalized experiences for their customers. I mean, the mantra that you guys have is, we can't wait to see what you build. When it comes to CX, as the chief customer officer and, and looking at the experiences of your audience, are you more concerned about creating experiences for the developers who are actually building the, on the technology, on the APIs, and some of them actually building entire digital companies on Twilio's technology platform? Or are you really more concerned about really down the line, the indirect end user experience? So Twilio fundamentally is an infrastructure company. We're an API company. We're probably closer in spirit to like AWS than to Salesforce. And we expect software companies to build their products on top of Twilio, and tens of thousands of them have done that. So a lot of our customers are actually software companies that just build on top of Twilio. You also have individual developers, as you mentioned. You can write a, a program using Twilio APIs in 10 minutes. You can be sending SMS messages to people's phones or placing phone calls over the internet. It's a really cool uh, technology, cool set of APIs. So as the chief customer officer at Twilio, I've got a lot of constituencies to look out for. Software companies built on Twilio, you know, the developers, the product managers, they're my customer. We also have individual developers. We And you mentioned, Larry, the end users of those companies. So if you're using a product that eventually sends you a text message, Uber is the classic example a lot of people use. Like, you know, when you um, get a car on Uber, you get a text message, hey, your driver's five minutes away. That text message is carried over Twilio. And uh, Uber makes an API call to our API, and we send the SMS message to the phone. So the end users of those apps are also important to us. And to even speak more broadly about it, Twilio as a communications company as well, really is interested in consumer trust. So any company like Twilio that's touching millions and millions of people's cell phones, that we're getting into your email inbox through SendGrid, we have a responsibility as a company to protect the interests of end consumers 
that are receiving our communications or communications companies send through Twilio. So there's all these interesting interplays of like, who is Twilio serving? Telecommunications carriers, anybody with a cell phone, anybody with an email inbox, and developers and software companies. Like Twilio is in the middle of just a lot of action and it makes for a super fun job. We know at Twilio that we're powering some of the best customer engagement and that's extremely gratifying and we're very happy to play that role um you know we see the uh, the results of that and we see the problems and the criticality of our service you know one of the things i'm responsible for at twilio is, is the customer support department and so i you know i see developers writing it's twilio hey um you know we had a hiccup with our sms messaging and and you know that kind of hiccup that's no small bug. like that means you know a thousand people didn't get told about their appointment that means that telemedicine company couldn't run a virtual doctor visit. You know, the criticality of the infrastructure running over Twilio is so vital. Um, so one, we feel a high obligation to keep it running for our customers you know, all the time. But two, it just adds to that gratifying feeling. Like what Twilio is powering is important. It's important to us, to our families, to our neighbors. It's a really, really great kind of company to work for. One of the really interesting things that always comes up, and everybody seems to be trying to find this perfect balance particularly in customer experience and digital CX, the right balance of automation and human interaction. I think you know where I'm going on this. Where do you think the balance is, the right balance between something that's automated or something where there is a human? Well, the simplest solution to this problem is to think about the title of this podcast, Customer Experience. If you start with the customer experience in mind, there are certain things that we as consumers appreciate when it's automated, and there are certain things that tick us off and feel unnatural when they're automated. So where automation makes people's lives easier, you want it and you want to push it. You shouldn't have to do anything other than text a message to a number to accomplish something. That's good automation. Then there's bad automation, which is annoying, which is marketing-driven and non-consensual. when you're forced to talk to a chatbot instead of a human because you can just tell to try to cut costs. That's an unnatural level of automation. It's not a customer uh, experience-centric way to build. And Twilio, we're just one company, but like we try to bring both of those perspectives to our customers. And we offer both types of channels. We have chatbots, we have a, a chat API, but we also have a voice API. And one of the things Twilio talks about all the time is conversations with customers where what starts out as an automated conversation should be able to seamlessly drift into a live conversation and back and be recognized as a single thread of conversation. That to me is one of the ultimate manifestations of customer engagement is where it crosses channels and feels like a continuous conversation. That's one of the things we preach at Twilio, customer engagement, meeting customers where they want to be met, not where you want to meet. What's your threshold for failure? I mean, you're, you're looked at as trying new things. You're obviously a thought leader and you're clearly not afraid to make mistakes. I mean, what's your threshold and um, how do you, do you pivot? Or uh, Is there a certain point where you pivot from the failure or do you just move on real fast? You know, Twilio has changed me a little bit in that respect. The stakes are very high for our customers. And yeah, we can experiment uh, on the edges with new products and new features. But, you know, there's a core of Twilio And I kind of think of this as like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs translated into technology or for any company. This is a theory that says that if you don't take care of someone's basic needs, you haven't really earned the right to their attention for some higher order stuff. Like, you know, for humans, like the basic needs are shelter and food and oxygen. And now you can start talking about higher level things like 
fulfillment and satisfaction. So at Twilio, the version of that is like the basic needs of our customers. Their messages need to reach their recipients. Their messages need to comply with requirements so they're not blocked or filtered by carriers. You need to be able to send the volume of messages. If you're serving a thousand customers a minute, you better be able to send a thousand messages a minute. If we don't take care of those basics, we haven't earned the right to talk about improving your marketing strategy, improving your ROI on customer engagement. All that stuff comes later, and that's really a lot of the Twilio value proposition, but we don't have the right to talk about that until we've handled the basics. So I think on the basics, there's no room for failure. We've got to deliver those to the highest level SLA we can. We have a solemn obligation to our customers to do that. You can experiment on the fringe, on the, hey, what would be a more creative way to to drive more customer engagement using SMS messaging as an example? That's a great place to experiment. So I think, you know, knowing what's critical and you can't mess with it and knowing what's the room for experiment is pretty key judgment call. What do you see the future of not just Twilio, platforms like Twilio that are under this great pressure to create these incredible brand experiences You own that communication with the end user. And there always is this scenario of, are we automating out jobs? And I think hopefully we've gotten beyond that, that automation is really a factor of experience. But where do you think the future is? I think customer engagement or customer experience broadly for technology kind of moves two steps forward, one step back. But the overall trend is positive we want more automation. You know, I installed a Google Nest doorbell this weekend. So I think I'm one of the last people in America to have a video doorbell. There were kinks uh, when that first came to the market, but now it it delivers a lot of value to people all around the world. So the general trend of automation is positive and makes people's lives better. There are short-term setbacks where, you know, and I, I gave an example earlier, which to me kind of personifies when you're doing it wrong, when you're annoying customers. Or the in Twilio ease, we call that non-consensual. You know, if you send messages or make phone calls to people that they would consider spam, that's bad. And we don't allow that. And there are a lot of rules against it. But like that's where a lot of people's brains go to. Oh, I'm going to be an aggressive marketer. I'm going to go after my customer engagement space. Well, you know, in, in the same way, like you can over-automate. You make people talk to a chap up before they can speak to a human. So it's the same instinct as, I'm just going to send emails. I don't care if anyone's opted in or not. You know, there's a balancing act. And in the long run, the bad guys don't win. You know, spammers get kicked off of platforms and annoying marketers don't achieve the ROI that effective marketers do. So uh, we have to trust to some extent that um, these are positive trends uh, on the whole. Automation is a positive trend. I don't have too many reservations that we're automating away jobs or anything like that. These are positive trends for humanity and they're creating higher value jobs and better jobs and eliminating manual work that is all good in the end. Some of our customers um, do look at Twilio like a machine that can just fire off a lot of emails or a lot of SMS messages or just place a lot of phone calls. And there's a little bit of education there as to what the role of Twilio is and the proper use of our infrastructure. You know, this is where life gets a little complicated. Like, you know, it's very attractive to say to a software developer, hey, sign up for Twilio, you're sending a message in 10 minutes. And that's true. We keep the barrier to the technology very low. But once you start to use it at production scale, we all have obligations here. You know, Twilio has obligations and our customers have obligations too. And I think that's the, that's kind of the difference between an experiment and a company that's really serving the world at scale, making a real difference. You know, we take those obligations seriously. Who are your customers? 
they're the people that are building software on Twilio, but they're also the people receiving those communications, you know, all consumers. So we're trying to balance the needs of all of our constituents. I think all quote unquote real companies recognize that. You don't get very far in the startup world without realizing you've got an obligation to the customers and the society that you exist inside. Yeah, and you're certainly in a position to be able to do that. And, you know, you're thought of as a leader in the CX space. Do you feel that there's an added pressure to that? Do you embrace it? Oh, I, I, I'm in a dream job right now. I totally embrace it. You know, I feel like um, I'm the first chief customer officer at Twilio. They created the position for me, basically. And, you know, I think my own career in a weird way has kind of led me to this place. I started a consulting company, so I understand professional services. I used to run customer support teams at the first few software companies I worked for. And we have customer success manager teams here at Twilio. So you know, a lot of my career and the Navy leadership that I learned has all kind of led to, it's a pretty good resume actually for a chief customer officer. And so I feel like I'm playing the part I was meant to play and I'm playing it at a software company where we embrace and we celebrate programmers, we celebrate developers. You said earlier, like the Twilio tagline, we can't wait to see what you build. And we're talking about in software, what can you build in software? That's kind of like the playground part. I totally embrace it. And I'm really glad that I can combine all those skills and have a place that is willing to pay me money to use all this. I love it. Any uh, advice you want to give to our listeners on that note? So, uh, yes, uh, some leadership advice. Um, it's not so, so much military, but I learned this from my co-founder at Aperio and our CEO and really the kind of heart and soul of the company. And he taught me three things, which I try to remember to this day. Number one, always have time for a customer call. Um, you can never speak to enough customers. Number two, prioritize a live human over a document or an email. I've seen this, especially when we all used to work in the office. Like, you know, you walk over to someone's desk and they're like, hold on, I'm finishing this email. Never do that. Never do that. Always prioritize a living, breathing human being over bits and bytes. Or... And then third, uh, and I learned this also from Chris, our CEO at Imperial. Success ultimately is that actually it's about relationships. It, it ain't about what you know, it's about who you know, who knows you, and who respects you. So build empathy. It's what your colleagues want more than your technical input is your empathy. That is one of my paths to success. Thank you very much. That was Glenn Weinstein, Chief Customer Officer at Twilio. It's been great having you, Glenn. Thank you, Larry, and appreciate the conversation. This podcast is brought to you by HGS a global leader of digital customer experiences with the talent and technologies to champion every moment. Learn more at hgs.cx.